There was a certain man named Judas, who was a type of guerrilla freedom fighter. He led a mob to the city of Sepphoris in Galilee. And there they attacked the city and raided its treasury and arms and distributed the weapons. This was an anti-Herod protest. Rome responded with swift and severe action. They demolished the city, leveled it flat, sold its citizens that were not slaughtered into slavery. Why does this story matter for us? Because it happened in 4 BC, just after King Herod died. Yes, that's about the time Jesus was born. And Rome launched a rebuilding project of this city. And it took years, years of which Jesus was growing up. This happened walking distance from Jesus's town of Nazareth. The Bible calls him a tecton, that's the Greek for a craftsman. We have often translated it as carpenter, which in English implies wood, but the Greek does not necessitate that. In fact, it's questioned that Jesus would be able to work with wood in a region that did not have much of it. Rather, there was a plethora of stone, and there was a city walking distance from Jesus that had been leveled by the Roman soldiers and was in the midst of rebuilding. Jesus likely went with his father Joseph to the city of Sepphoris every day and worked his craft with stone, made a living helping to rebuild a city that Rome in its oppressive violence leveled with bloodshed. Jesus saw the vicious violence of the Pax Romana firsthand. The Pax Romana was Rome's policy to maintain peace at all costs, even at the cost of an entire population. Hi everyone, Pastor Brandon here. Welcome to B-Sides, where we discuss whatever can't fit in a sermon. This episode, Jesus the Peacemaker, and it follows my message on Palm Sunday titled, Peace Sunday, a very challenging message, I would say, which went in 60 seconds, something like this. We looked at Jesus riding in on the donkey, something we call the triumphal entry. The donkey was symbolic of peace, if you look at Zechariah 9, 9 through 10. But the palm branches that the crowds waved were symbolic of violent revolution. It was like waving guns or swords. Jesus enters the city and weeps, saying, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you have not understood the things that make for peace. They thought Jesus would lead a war against Rome. So what does Jesus do? He cleanses the temple of bandits, robbers, those who want a violent revolution. Now, in the message, I made it very clear that I don't have a clue how we're supposed to live as a nation in light of this. But I did make the application for us to have interpersonal relationships 
of peace there. So that being said, it can be assumed that I was very anti-war in the message. And to a degree, how can any of us not be? How can any of us sit around and say that war is God's best will for us? We can't. We can't. War is never God's best will. For many centuries, the church has followed what they call the just war theory. And this is a set of conditions proposed by the famous theologian Thomas Aquinas in the 1200s. And he set up these conditions to say, war may not always be avoidable. So here are the conditions that make it just, that make it right. First, war is just if it is launched by a sovereign authority. In other words, the king or the president or the congress or whatever has to start the war. It cannot be started by uh, militias. Uh, that are underneath the sovereigns. In other words, th- the whole point of this is that I don't say I'm a powerful person. I have a grudge against someone over there. I don't raise up an army and go attack his estate. That that was the goal in that condition. The second condition was that the war must be for a just cause. So a great example of that would be World War II. We were trying to fight a very evil power that was murdering people on the basis of race or on the basis of not having what Hitler was looking for. Uh, so that would fall under this condition. Uh, it was, <laughs> it was for a just reason. And then the third condition, a war is just when there is an intention to promote good Instead of evil. Again, I would say World War II fits into that condition. Um, but that's kind of ironic. You're trying to promote good, but you're using murder to do so. It's just a hard one to look at. But I think you can uh, look at some situations and say, yeah, maybe we are promoting good. At least our intent is good and it's not evil. But binding all three of these conditions is the idea of limited violence and the practice of ethics wherever possible. So the church has always thought, okay, if we have to go to war, let's limit the casualties as far as possible. And let's make sure all of our tactics have an ethic. Uh, so I think part of what you can see in that is how uh, our military doesn't leave anyone behind. That would be one of the ethics. Uh, we're trying to do our best to maintain humanity's uh, um, dignity in the process. We try to minimize the amount of civilians in the casualties. So you can see some of that playing out. So the church has had a hand in shaping um, our idea of how to go to war and how to fight it. So... That there is the just war theory from Thomas Aquinas in the 1200s, and we've been following that ever since.
After the message, I received an email from someone who wanted to voice a concern. Which, by the way, I'm always thankful for, that somebody is willing to talk about the concern rather than just assume that they know my heart. (laughs) This email mentioned Matthew chapter 10, verse 34, which says, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. Do you see how that can be concerning? Because I was talking about how Jesus came to bring peace. Here, he's saying he has not come to bring peace. Rather, division. As it goes on to say, For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. And then Jesus says, Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. So what happened to the peacemaking Jesus? This one sounds like he's bringing division and rivalry. But please, please, please notice that Jesus is not bringing violence we do not see him saying that father will kill son and daughter will kill mother and daughter-in-law will kill mother-in-law or fight or beat up or attack. It is not saying anything like that. In fact, the rest of this paragraph seems to clarify what kind of uh, division will be brought. Jesus says, Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. He calls us there to take up our cross. Therefore, Jesus cannot be talking about violence. The division that's happening here is over who Jesus is and how he's asking us to live. The division is over some saying they want to follow the kingdom of Christ and others choosing rather to maintain their allegiance to the kingdoms of this world. And that can separate even close friendships at times. Two kingdoms can have two completely different values. And so Jesus calls us to take up our cross. The cross is not someone else's. He is not telling us that we should put people on their crosses. He's telling us to pick up our cross. The cross was where you died. The cross was where Jesus gave himself up. And so what he's asking us to do is, if there is division and disagreement and misunderstanding, we need to be the ones who are big enough to take the hit. In a sense, Jesus is still calling for peace. I think what may be hard is when we talk about peacemaking and and bringing peace to the world, some people frown and say, yeah, but there's darkness. Light and darkness cannot mix. Peace 
this isn't the, that cheap kind of piece where we're just trying to have everyone kumbaya, hold hands, and smile, and have these warm feelings for each other. Obviously, there are going to be some tensions in the world. There is still evil. Peace does not mean we avoid the presence of evil. Please hear that again. We are not avoiding the presence of evil. Typically, there are two responses to evil. One, we just mentioned. Some will avoid it, ignore it, hide from it, pretend it's not there, and just assume it's somebody else's job to take care of it. Another example is to attack it. We see evil and we want to make things right. And so we will often go and try to eliminate it. Which sounds just and right. Until you realize you're using the very same methods that the evil is using. And you are becoming the very evil you're trying to eradicate. Jesus proposed a third option, one not often chosen. You see avoidance in World War II. Uh, some of the Christians in Germany just pretending they can't do anything about what was going on, ignoring it. We see attack in World War II as well uh, as people rose up to fight against Hitler. Um, again, not saying that that was a bad decision, uh, who knows if evil could have been stopped without that? I don't know. But Jesus gives us the ideal way, a third option. Don't avoid evil. Don't attack evil. But absorb evil. He talks about this in a passage you know very well in Matthew chapter 5. In Matthew 5, verse 39, this is part of his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Wait, what? On the surface, it sounds like Jesus is advocating that we become doormats, as some say, just if there's evil, just let it just trample over you. Don't fight against it. Don't stop it. Just if it does something to you, you just be like a sheep being led to the slaughter. But hold on just a minute. Hold on just a minute. If you understand the ancient slap etiquette of these days, yes, they had etiquette about how to slap each other then you'll see that Jesus is saying something very profound. So, what was the slap etiquette of the day? Well, the slap etiquette told you who you can hit and how you can hit them. So first, you need to understand that all hitting was done with the right hand. If you don't know why, just thank God that we have toilet paper. That's what the left hand did. Second, hitting had a certain, there were codes to how to do it. So if you're hitting an equal, you would hit them with a closed fist. Your right hand in a fist would connect with them. But if you're hitting an inferior, 
you were to slap them with the back of your right hand. Now, I want you to imagine yourself facing somebody, or maybe you can actually try this with somebody next to you. Just don't hit them too hard. If you slap them with the back of your right hand, then you will connect with which cheek? Exactly, the right cheek. Notice again what Jesus says. If anyone slaps, so there you go, we're dealing with an inferior. A superior is hitting an inferior. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, then what? Turn to him the other also. So the back of the right hand connects with the person's right cheek. Now I want you to imagine that person turns their head so that their left cheek is now facing you. Now imagine trying to hit them with the back of your right hand on their left cheek. It's a little bit awkward. And what you actually begin to realize is that this subtle turn of the head immediately puts the attacker, the superior, the one with power, in a very awkward situation. He cannot strike the left cheek with the back of his right hand. That turned cheek silently dares him to hit that left cheek the only way he can hit it with his right hand, which is with a closed fist. You see what's happening? Exactly. The one who is lower than the superior, the one who's on the receiving end of his wrath, he's the victim. He's powerless before a superior. He has the opportunity to call himself an equal if the superior is willing to admit it. This is the genius of Jesus. Asking us to resist those who are abusing power, not by hitting them back, not by letting them continue to hit people, but by the simple gesture announcing to them, I'm a human too. You have no right to treat me like that. And it puts shame upon them. They realize in that moment with that left cheek taunting them, that they cannot keep treating you like that. This, by the way, is what Martin Luther King Jr. did in America. He's one of our closest examples of how to use this third option. He didn't avoid the evil of racism. He didn't attack it with violence. They sought to absorb it by standing up in dignity and showing their oppressors that they, too, are human he was very much formed by the teachings of Jesus. And the, the genius of Jesus' teaching here, which King understood, is that you're no longer oppressing, I'm sorry, you're no longer standing up to, you're no longer resisting the evil person. You're resisting the evil action. Very important distinction. Because if we do not violently attack then the person is still intact and they have opportunity 
for repentance. And isn't that what God wants? He wants the one acting in evil to transform, not the victim to transform into the same violent image of the evil one. King said this, Hate is a cancerous disease which distorts the personality and scars the soul. To return hate for hate only intensifies the existence of hate in the universe. Hate seeks to annihilate rather than convert. Let me read that again. Hate seeks to annihilate rather than convert. It destroys community and makes brotherhood impossible. We must learn that it is possible to stand up courageously and positively against an evil system and yet not resist it with physical weapons and inner feelings of hatred. God's love is so profound and big that it doesn't just come to the evil person. It wants to enter inside of them. Are we willing to be those instruments of his love? To stand up to evil in order to say, this is not salvation. And to give them a chance to see the folly of their ways and an opportunity to convert because of the way we lovingly resist. Or are we, are we going to continue the vicious and endless cycle of revenge, recycling violence with violence with violence with violence? Brothers and sisters, again, I don't know what this means about war, per se. Perhaps sometimes it's inevitable that we go to war. But can we not at least realize that that isn't our first option? Can we not first turn the other cheek to those who are doing wrong? Give them an opportunity to change their ways. And if we would start living at peace with God within ourselves and at peace with each other, maybe there would be less need for war around us. Look, I don't know. I don't know if we'll ever see an end to war before Jesus comes. But I sure don't want to give up and say it's hopeless until he comes. We may not be able to stop an actual worldwide war, but we can stop the wars in our midst. And maybe if enough people do that, maybe we would have fewer wars before Jesus comes. I'm just amazed at God's love, and it's my heart and passion to show how deep and profound it is. I do not want anybody to feel ashamed that they ever served in a war or ever voted for a war or ever cheered one on. That's not the goal here. The goal is to simply ask the question, how should we, as the kingdom of God, live? All right, everyone. Hope you are challenged. Hope you are enriched. Hope this was helpful. I'm Pastor Brandon with Grace and Gratitude. <laughs>